if this war lasts for several years, in fact, maybe even as long as decades, the country that we knew as Sudan, sort of regional linchpin between the Red Sea, the Horn of Africa, the Sahel, and Central Africa will no longer exist. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. As we enter 2024, the conflict in Sudan is shaping up to be one of the worst crises in the world. Nearly 7 million people have been displaced, hunger is widespread, and a hallmark of this civil war has been ethnic cleansing that may have crossed the threshold to genocide. Despite being a calamitous catastrophe, Sudan has not received much media attention nor sustained high-level engagement by policymakers, particularly in the West. However, this is a crisis that we've covered regularly even prior to the outbreak of war in April, and I assure you that we will cover this episode well into the future. So today, and to kick off 2024, I am bringing you my conversation with Khouloud Kher, the founder and managing director of Confluence Advisory, a think-and-do tank formerly based in Khartoum. We kick off discussing her analysis of why conflict broke out in the first place in April between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces. We then discuss how this conflict evolved to the point where the Rapid Support Forces appear to very much have the upper hand and why international diplomacy has thus far failed to end this civil war. This episode will give you really helpful context for understanding the crisis in Sudan as it evolves throughout the year. Today's episode is produced in part with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. It's part of a series of episodes featuring African expertise on peace and security issues in Africa. And as always, please visit globaldispatches.org. You can use the contact button to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people you think I should interview or topics you think I should cover. You can also sign up for our newsletter on the site. There's also a paid option if you want to support the show via globaldispatches.org. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Khouloud Kher.
to kick off, I'm interested in getting your explanation for why it was that armed conflict broke out between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces back in April. One thing we have to remember is that before all of this started, the RSF head, General Hemeti, and the head of the Sudanese armed forces, General Burhan, were very closely allied to each other. They've always had different interests, but they've had very much mutual interests as well. And at a certain point, their mutual interests were superseded by their competing interests. And that's why the war started. These guys fought together and they were very instrumental in the genocide against African groups in Darfur in 2003 to 2005. They've had sort of long careers together. They deposed the 30-year dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir together at the behest of the 2018 revolution. They became part of the civilian military hybrid government during the transitional period under Dr. Abdullah Hamdok. And then they led a coup against that same hybrid government on outer goal pay. So they effectively they consolidated more power than they already had within the hybrid governmental system. And then their competing or diverging interests started to supersede their mutual interests. And what were key elements of their divergent interests? I mean, after having worked together to depose first al-Bashir and then the civilian-led transitional government, what was it that sparked their irreconcilable difference that led them to fight each other? So their mutual interests were trying to avoid any kind of transitional justice requirements as dictated by the new sort of democratizing Sudanese political landscape to maintain their troops as much as possible, not to downsize their troops, not to integrate their troops, and then to maintain their monies, or some of them ill-gotten and oftentimes captured from the state coffers. So those were their three mutual interests. But then we started to see that the coup that they led together in October of 2021, so two years ago, they had very different ideas about how they wanted to consolidate that coup. For General Burhan of the Sudanese Armed Forces, or SAF, he wanted to bring about this sort of Egypt scenario, this Assisi scenario, quickie elections, the military consolidates not just political power, but also economic power. With General Hemeti, his sense of how he wanted to construct the Sudanese state was very much trying to do away with some of the old, bearing in mind he's always been a bit of a political outlier, and to effectively recreate a Sudanese state that would embrace him and the people that he has seen as marginalized by the Sudanese state since independence. Now, to be fair and to be clear, he, he says that he wants to bring about civilian democracy in Sudan, or at least some form of democracy in Sudan, but everything that he has done indicates that he doesn't want to do away with the militarized nature of Sudanese politics, but rather he wants to capture it. And so that's where the irreconcilability comes in. Both men want to create a Sudan to their liking or maintain the Sudan that they like, in the case of Burhan, and the two of them can't get that same thing. So these irreconcilable differences led to outright war on April 15th, How has the conflict evolved since the outbreak of war, which began in Khartoum, but spread elsewhere rather quickly? So the first thing I think that was immediately noticeable is that while you started off with two main belligerents, 
the SAF under General Burhan and the RSF under General Hameti, soon you saw the involvement, even militarily, of many other groups. You had rebel groups who had signed the peace agreement with that hybrid government during the transitional period. They sort of chose sides and were split between those who backed Burhan and those who backed Hameti. You had, quote-unquote, civilian groups who ostensibly are the sort of more democratic actors in Sudan. Some of them have also chosen their sort of security guarantor in the form of a military actor. And so you have this splitting between many within the Sudanese political landscape, particularly political elites, where they've chosen one general over the other. For a lot of Sudanese people, they don't like either general. They see very well that these are the same people who stole the dreams of the revolution by launching their coup in 2021. But there is more, or has been until very recently, much more of a gravitational pull towards the Sudanese armed forces because they are the formal military institution within the country. And many see the RSF not as a paramilitary entity that became part of the governing structures, but as a militia. And certainly their behavior since the war began, particularly the atrocities committed in Darfur, the looting and pillaging that has taken place in urban areas, including Khartoum and most recently Medani, that has cast them very much in that militia light. And it seems, however, that the RSF is very much with the upper hand at the moment, several months into the conflict. They control much of Khartoum, pretty much all of Darfur except for one city, and most recently took control of Wad Madani, the second largest city in the country, in a major agricultural hub where hundreds of thousands of people fled from Khartoum. Why is the RSF seemingly so successful on the battlefield at this point? So there are several reasons. One is the RSF have a lot of money particularly stored away in foreign bank accounts that they still have access to. So they have been able to recruit massively, not just within Sudan, but also across the Sahel. And their foreign funds have allowed them to buy weapons and large amounts of weapons that have found their way into Sudan through the Western border, through Chad and through Darfur, into the rest of the country. So they've been able through the rainy season, through the sort of late summer into early autumn months, they have been able to amass a fighting army and the weapons required to be able to launch this full-scale attack that we're seeing. And they've been able to capture, particularly in Darfur, several state capitals. Darfur is a region made up of five federal states. They've been able to capture four out of those five federal states relatively quickly. And we're seeing something of that same domino effect also take place in other parts of the country now. First with Medani, which is in Jazeera state. We're also hearing that they're in White Nile state, in Sinar state, in Gadara state, and on the edges of River Nile state. So you're already looking at this mushrooming, this metastasization of the RSF across the country. The other reason and it's a big one, is that, frankly, the Sudanese armed forces is not the fighting force that they had led so many of us to believe that they were. For those of us who've been tracking the political developments for several years have noticed that as a public institution, the Sudanese armed forces was not immune to the kind of gutting that Bashir's regime committed to other public institutions. So it's actually not a surprise that SAF is so weak as an institution that you have 
soldiers who rather than investing in training were investing in trade in order to make ends meet. And you have uh, Sudanese armed forces alongside other organs of the Sudanese security state that were absorbing 70 to 80 percent of the national budget during the Bashir years and to some degree after that, even during the transitional period. For comparison, health and education together received 1% of the national budget during the Bashir years. And so though they were getting the cream, as it were, all of those years, that was going to a sort of the top brass within the military and not really being invested in training, in professionalization of the army, in combat readiness, and in the kind of tactical and strategic investments that would be required to launch a full-scale attack. I don't think even SAF officers recognize the extent to which they were not battle ready. And frankly speaking, the Sudanese army has always outsourced the infantry division of its military campaigns to other actors, be they ethnic groupings, which the RSF started off as in Darfur, be they paramilitary groups, etc. And so this is actually a direct consequence of the fact that the Sudanese army never invested in the right kind of assets to be able to launch a war of this kind. So for all these reasons, it would seem that the RSF, at least as we're speaking now in late December, looks poised to take control of more and more territory, more and more cities. You said there's one last city in, in Darfur that has not fallen under their control, Al-Fashir, and there are other cities and areas that they seem to be targeting. What do you see as some of the key implications for Sudan, for the region, and perhaps even globally, should the RSF win this civil war? And what does winning even look like in this context? I mean, I think that last question is the most important one, because frankly speaking, there is no winning here. Even if the RSF was able to militarily dominate a lot of territory, effectively taking that territory from SAF, it has no plan as to how to govern that territory that it has taken. And if we want to see what a post-RSF, quote-unquote, victory in Sudan would look like, we need to look no further than those Darfuri states where they have taken over. For example, in South Darfur state and in the capital, Niala, they have tried to set up a sort of rule of law framework by setting up these police forces. And by all accounts, that has largely failed because for one thing, policing requires public trust. I think we've seen that very clearly across different contexts globally. And people in places like Niala and others do not trust the RSF, particularly the way that they came in through conquest, but also because they have committed so many atrocities And people are very much aware of that. And you can't have a force that, frankly, has been committing massacres and atrocities, ethnic cleansing and genocide-like events that then also tries to bring in some kind of rule of law only a few weeks later. So the RSF has a crisis of legitimacy and it has a very sort of clear lack of a governance strategy. And I don't think they'll be able to come up with one as quickly as they are able to take territory. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the Sudanese armed forces as the national army will not simply disappear. And the worry there is that the SAF will fragment. And given that there will be a lot of officers who have an axe to grind with the RSF and who are well-trained in using firearms and who may gravitate towards jihadi-like setups, 
we are looking at a very long campaign, a counter campaign by these fragmented, potentially jihadi groups against whatever RSF rule will take place. So there's no winning here. There's no clear victory. We're also going to see, I think, the emergence of potentially small, but also potentially not so small, armed movements across the country against RSF rule. Because again, the means are very, very important, not just the ends. And there are a lot of people who have lost lives, who have lost friends, who have lost family, who have lost possessions, certainly, who have lost what they feel is their entire future. And those people will very quickly become dispossessed. And in a country that is awash with small arms, it becomes very easy for those people to form armed groups against RSF rules. So I think if the RSF is in a position to declare a unilateral victory, potentially by taking Port Sudan, a city on the Red Sea coast, that will only be the beginning of a new phase of this war. And it certainly looks like it would last a lot longer than the current nine-month stretch of this phase. And just to note, Port Sudan is in the far east of the country on the Red Sea coast, and it's the real last stronghold of the Sudanese armed forces. In the far west, the RSF has been conducting itself in a way highly reminiscent of the genocide 20 years ago, which is not surprising considering that the RSF is built from the remnants of the Janjawi. This time it would seem that in cities, particularly in Western Darfur, in which they have captured, they have systematically targeted ethnic Mazalit communities for ethnic cleansing, for rape, for extrajudicial killings. It seems to be a very systematic sort of strategy. I'm curious to learn from you, what's the strategic logic for using ethnic cleansing or potentially even genocide as a tactic in this civil war, particularly in Darfur? Well, there is some debate amongst analysts and others as to what extent the RSF has ordered these genocide-like attacks. And that is in no way to diminish their responsibility for it, because of course, the perpetrators were wearing RSF uniforms and they certainly acted with the knowledge of the RSF. But the question sort of remains as to what tactical advantage that would give the RSF to have its troops and soldiers commit these sorts of atrocities if they mean to come in under a banner of democracy and civilian transition. And the answer lies somewhere in the realm of, you know, the RSF does not have the command and control capacity that it says it has. And we already see the fraying of its command and control structures once they have taken territory. So in Darfur right now, a place where they already had a lot of political and financial influence and a place that they have taken sort of 80% of, you're already seeing things fraying at the seams for the RSF, which indicate very much that the command and control structures are not actually what the RSF would like us to believe that they are. The other thing is that the Juba Peace Agreement of 2020 has a lot to answer for. This was an agreement that was effectively set up and negotiated by the military part of the hybrid transitional government. And in a way, it was designed to counter the revolutionary street. The two generals, Burhan and Hemeti, brought together all the different armed groups, some of them from Darfur, to effectively offer a counterweight to the civilian section, the civilian part of the transitional government. And those armed actors that became part of 
the military's sphere of influence, they were rewarded with different political positions and different levels of access to resources. So, for example, you have a group called the Sudan Alliance, which signed the Juba Peace Agreement and was rewarded with the governorship of West Darfur, whose capital is Jinana. That governorship fell to the head of the Sudan Alliance, whose name is Khamis Abakar. Now, earlier in June, the RSF and allied Arab militias were responsible for first the arrest, then detention, then assassination, then mutilation of Khamis Abakar, and then subsequently other atrocities that very much seem consistent with ethnic cleansing and genocide. The reason for this is that the Arab militias that coexist alongside the Masalit were not rewarded in any kind of peace agreement or political agreement. So they saw this war as a chance to settle old scores with some of those groups who had been rewarded through these peace agreements. And so under the cover of this national war, we saw these allied groups effectively swear fealty to the RSF if the RSF would either facilitate or turn a blind eye to their settling of scores with this Masalit community. But of course, this is mimetic. So what we hear now is that the Masalit community, many of whom, those who survived, have gone into Chad, west of Sudan, and they are now potentially also training to make a comeback. So this is something that's going to go back and forth, and we could indeed see far more atrocities take place there. It does seem that like local grievances are far more nuanced and covered less to the extent that this conflict is even covered at all than the kind of national conflict between the RSF and the SAF. I did want to ask you one question about foreign support for the RSF, which you alluded to earlier. To what extent by foreign support do you mean really just the UAE, which is holding a lot of the RSF's cash reserves and also is you know, lots of public journalistic reports have suggested that they are the ones that are funneling guns and ammo to the RSF. The UAE does appear to be very much a steadfast supporter of the RSF, but they are not working alone. You know, the UAE is not that close to Sudan. It's on the other side of the Gulf. And so they are using, you know, countries in the region, making them offers they can't refuse, frankly, particularly Chad to the west of Sudan, in order to funnel these supplies in consistently for several months now, since at least the middle of this year. And so, yes, the UAE is definitely engaged in this, and it, it is where most of the RSF's money is held. You know, the UAE seemingly backs the RSF because they have a stated aim of countering regional globalized Islamism, which the Sudanese armed forces is very much allied to or at least very sort of significant parts of the Sudanese armed forces are allied to. But the RSF also serves to fulfill many of the UAE's sort of security interests across the Sahel, not merely in Sudan. It does so also for Russia, for example, through its ties to the Wagner Group. But it's quite clear that the RSF relies on a local regional network between Libya, Chad, and Central African Republic that allow it to consistently be able to bring in recruits from across the Sahel and also fuel from Libya and also weapons through the Amjaris Air Base, which is located in the east of Chad, just a few kilometers west of Darfur. So there is a regional network that has been set up, seemingly all underwritten by 
the United Arab Emirates. But SAF also relies heavily on international, at least regional support. You know, SAF is backed heavily by Egypt to the north. It has been assiduously trying through Burhan's many trips to the region to present itself as the government, not just as a belligerent party. And so Burhan has taken many trips to the region, to Cairo, to Ankara, to Doha, to Juba, you know, all across the region, in order to drum up either political support or financial support. In the case of, for example, more recently Iran, they have been reportedly relying on some drones from the Iranians, or at least some material from the Iranians, including the Muhajir 6 drone, in order to be able to prosecute this war. So given that this conflict is, to a certain extent, internationalized, why have international efforts led by, say, the United States, EGAD, that the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, and other actors been thus far unable to mediate any meaningful peace agreement or at least a cessation of hostilities? The simple answer is that they are too fragmented in approach and too divergent in intended outcome to be able to rally together or work in tandem. Ordinarily speaking, you would have sort of one mediation platform. Now we have three. We have Cairo's neighboring countries initiative. We have the US-Saudi joint Jeddah platform. And you have the sort of EGAD AU political talks, AU being the African Union. And there is no reason why these three mediation platforms should not work together. You know, with Cairo looking at humanitarian assistance and access, Jeddah looking at ceasefire, and EGAD AU looking at a political agreement or a political settlement. But because Egypt has vastly different interests in political outcomes in Sudan than, for example, the AU and EGAD, who themselves as member states entities are also made up of countries that have very different interests to each other, you won't necessarily get the complementarity that you need. And in the terms of Jeddah, the joint Saudi-US initiative, that has continuously failed to bring about a ceasefire. And that's because the logics of Jeddah are predicated on an assumption that you can, through only two international actors of all the different international actors I've mentioned before, bring about a ceasefire, ignoring really the main international and regional backers of both sides, that is Egypt and the UAE. And it's very clear, and I think it's become very clear to everyone now, that the current setup in Jeddah just cannot bring about the kind of ceasefire that is required. Given your kind of outside position, your expertise, what could help prod the parties to a ceasefire at this point? I think to win any war, you need two things, blood and treasure. And it's very obvious that in order to curtail the extent to which these generals can prosecute this war and fund proxies to do it for them, you would need to curb their ability to access their funds. And though there have been some sanctions that have come into place, if the RSF has money in the UAE and SAF has money in Turkey, a NATO member, and let's say Malaysia, those sanctions won't work unless you get Turkey, Malaysia, and the UAE to play ball. And so far, the United States, which has imposed the highest number of sanctions of any country, 
has not done the work with some of these countries, Turkey, Malaysia, the United Arab Emirates, to get them to comply with US sanctions. And so those sanctions have mostly been symbolic. I think what would be required would be for the United States in particular, because though it has forfeited so much of its international power to regional actors, in particular Gulf actors, it still is a crucial global leader in Sudan and in the region. And if the United States were to take Sudan much more seriously, i.e. by appointing a presidential envoy who could speak to, for example, these princes in the Gulf or these presidents on the African continent and be able to corral them at least to work together to some degree, then I think that would go a long way. Frankly speaking, we haven't seen the level of diplomacy that is required for a context such as Sudan right now. And frankly, not the level of diplomacy we saw successive U.S. governments expend on Sudan previously, thinking here particularly during the CPA period of 2005. That's the comprehensive peace agreement that you're referring to? That entire period and, you know, throughout this sort of referendum that saw the secession of South Sudan, what is now South Sudan, throughout that entire period, the U.S. was very invested. It had an office of Sudan and South Sudan that that was well-staffed and it had subject matter experts and geographic contextual experts. And it was able to really plug into what was going on in the White House, as well as, of course, the State Department and the Hill. We are lacking that right now in terms of what is happening on the U.S. side of things. It's neglected. It is neglected mostly by the White House and the State Department. I don't think it would be fair to say that Sudan has been neglected by the Hill because What we see very clearly and quite consistently from the Hill is bicameral, bipartisan support for the right kind of political outcomes in Sudan. And we have seen that consistently since the fall of Bashir. We haven't seen that reflected in the State Department. So, for example, when the coup happened in 2021, the Hill was very much asking state to call the coup a coup and thereby behave in a specific way with the generals who had taken over power. Whereas what we saw from the State Department was a lot of molly coddling and a lot of appeasement tactics with these generals. And that level of impunity, I believe, and many others do too, directly led to the generals believing that they could prosecute this war really without anyone batting an eyelid. And the unfortunate reality is they were right. So as we enter 2024, What will you be looking towards? Any indicators that will suggest to you how this conflict may evolve? Well, there are, you know, sort of several working scenarios. The one I think that a lot of people wouldn't now sort of see as much more of a likelihood is that the RSF will continue to gain ground, certainly before the rainy season sets in next July. So it has a lot of time to do so. And that it would try to impress upon the territories and the people of the territories that it takes over, that it can be the sort of governing force for good. It will struggle to do so. I think we can also see, if things remain as they are, the total disintegration of the Sudanese army, which I think, like we saw in Iraq, would be quite disastrous. I think what we have seen, and this is the thing that gives me the most hope, is that despite the displacement, the despair, the death and destruction that we have seen everywhere this war has been waged, we see civic actors, we see groups that were the backbone of the revolution against Ahmed al-Bashir, the resistance committees, for example, the emergency response rooms that were set up to 
been sort of the first responders uh, in terms of the humanitarian effort, particularly in the absence of the international community, which is rather egregious. You know, we see these groups really trying to sort of work really hard to maintain whatever social cohesion there is, to maintain whatever peaceful coexistence there can be on the ground. As this war becomes more ugly, more ethnicized, these groups are still working really hard to maintain whatever goodness that existed between people across the country. So that, for me, is the thing we need to protect at all costs. But the unfortunate trajectory of things is that as things become more difficult, as the war continues to rage, as different parts of the country that have become sanctuary cities also become embroiled in this war, we're going to see a lot more displacement than we have. For example, in the past 24 to 48 hours, the United Nations has estimated that 300,000 people have fled Wad Medani when the RSF went in there. Those are the kinds of numbers we're looking at. We're looking at the highest displaced population in the world of around 7 million. We're looking at the only conflict globally today where it is the capital city that was first and foremost hit and that has continued to see a lot of the fighting and the destruction, thereby rendering Sudan very much on track for state collapse. And so we're looking effectively at a state that was barely viable even before this war, effectively being ripped apart. And what that means is that if this war lasts for several years, in fact, maybe even as long as decades, the country that we knew as Sudan, sort of regional linchpin between the Red Sea, the Horn of Africa, the Sahel, and Central Africa will no longer exist. So we may end up with not one broken Sudan, but a Sudan that has been shattered into different pieces with many different spheres of influence, with many different armed actors and belligerents, it will be very difficult to corral into one, for example, secession of hostilities agreement. And the longer the time goes on, and the more that this war is waged in the way that it has been, the more that that scenario is likely. Khalud, with that unfortunate conclusion, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.